You can take your Bibles, turn along with me to Colossians chapter 4. For the last time, for a while anyway, Colossians chapter 4, we'll be looking this morning at verse 18. This world is looking high and low for truth, wisdom, knowledge, and hope. They're looking for it far out in the reaches of space with telescopes and satellites They're looking for truth, wisdom, knowledge, and hope through the lens of microscopes. They're looking for truth, wisdom, knowledge, and hope by reading and learning from the greatest minds of the past and the present. And they're looking for truth, wisdom, knowledge, and hope by looking within themselves, hoping to find Soul satisfaction through self-reflection, self-realization, self-improvement, and the pursuit of radical self-autonomy. But the reality is, they will never ultimately find truth, wisdom, knowledge, and hope unless they look for it in Jesus Christ. That's what's so glorious about Paul's letter to the Colossians. It tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul tells us in this magnificent letter that Jesus is actually the treasure this world is looking for. He is the source of all truth, all wisdom, all knowledge... And he is the true and only source of hope. Jesus Christ, as revealed in Scripture and especially in the book of Colossians, is the very image of God. He is the person in whom the fullness of deity dwells. And more than that, he is the one who died to save us from our sins. To take that certificate of debt that was hostile against us and take it out of the way. He is the one who saves us from the wrath of God that we deserve. And to purchase for us, through his own death and resurrection, forgiveness and eternal life. This morning we come to the end of this short but powerful letter to the Colossians. And as we do, we're going to see once again who Jesus Christ truly is. And we'll see the gospel hope of Christ in you. So look with me at Colossians chapter 4 and verse 18, the very last verse of this letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for 
your servant Paul, who under difficult circumstances and imprisonment, nevertheless sought to be faithful to you and faithful to your gospel. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to the Colossian believers and by extension, because of its inspiration, wrote it to us as well. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this great letter that it reveals to us who you truly are. And not just who you truly are, but what you've done for us and now how you reside within us as Christians. Therefore, we have all power. We are strengthened by your presence operating and working within us. And this gives us hope. Hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and hope for all eternity. A hope that the world doesn't know. A hope that our enemy can never take away from us. Remind us of this hope this morning. Instill in us this hope this morning. Renew and rekindle this hope within us this morning. We ask this because we need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we close out this study. I want to remind you of where we've been. After a long trip, it's good to sit down and reflect a bit on where you've been. To remember some of the places you visited and some of the people you met. To reflect on some of the beauty you have seen and to internalize some of the lessons you've learned along the way. Since February of this year, we've been on our own journey through this letter to the Colossians. Counting today, that's 24 messages in all. There's a lot of significance that is packed into this little letter that has been conveniently divided for us into four chapters and 95 verses. But in all of this detail, it can be easy to miss the forest for the trees. So what I want us to do this morning is to remember where we've been. To zoom back and to look at the forest, if you will. To pull up and look at this book from 10,000 feet and see once again the lay of the land and some of the more prominent features of this little letter. So we're going to do a jet tour this morning through the whole book by walking through the outline of the book. Then we're going to look again at the overall theme of the book. And then once we've done that, I want us to look together briefly at this last verse of this magnificent letter. Now I'm sharing the outline with you on the screen behind me. It'll come up maybe all at once, maybe as I go through. I'm not sure how it's set up. But. And as we quickly walk through this book together... We're going to look at the grand sweep of what Paul writes here. You can also find this outline fully listed for you on the church app under sermon notes. You can find it there as well. First of all, we have the introduction and prayer. It comes from verse 1 through verse 14 of chapter 1. Paul makes it clear in his introduction that he is certain that he is writing to believers 
For he refers to his readers at the very outset as saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Chapter 1, verse 2. He goes on then immediately to give thanks to God for them, for their faith in Christ, for their love, for their fellow believers. Already from the report he's heard from Epaphroditus, who's come from there to Rome to tell him an update about the church and what's happening there, already he is encouraged by the fruit that he is hearing about in their lives. He then explains that since the first day he heard that the gospel had come to Colossae and taken hold in the lives of these dear saints, he has not stopped praying for them, praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 9. He prays this for them in order that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, verse 10. This is, of course, the Christian's great goal in life. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects. In our choices, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, and in our actions. In all of life, our goal is to please Him in all respects. This new goal and purpose in life has come about, of course, because God has rescued us from the domain of darkness in which we once lived. And He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And it is through God's Son that we now have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Having mentioned God's beloved Son, Paul takes the opportunity, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 1, to explain and describe just who God's Son is. And we have here a marvelous description of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to the first main heading the first of four main headings in the book, the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. I'd be remiss if I were to seek to summarize the book of Colossians and fail to read in full this glorious description of the Christ, the Son of God. So let me read it for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is where... All the cults go wrong, right? It's at the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Paul tells us in rapid fire succession, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
After this glorious summation of the person of Christ, Paul goes on to say that although we were alienated from God and hostile in mind toward Him and engaged in evil deeds, that this same Son of God, this same Christ, described in verses 15 through 20, is the one who has Himself reconciled us through the death of His fleshly body in order to present us before Him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Christian, today I want to assure you that if you have indeed trusted in this Jesus for your salvation, you stand before God today holy, blameless, beyond reproach. For you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have been justified, declared righteous by God on the basis of His Son's righteousness and His righteous sacrifice for you. Paul is now a minister of this gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus, a gospel which can be summarized as Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter 1, verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is a minister of this gospel and of Christ's church, suffering for the sake of the gospel of Christ, proclaiming this message far and wide to Jew and to Gentile. What was Paul's message? Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him. Jesus Christ. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is the church's mission. To proclaim Christ. That is the preacher's mission. That is the elder's mission. That is the church's mission. To proclaim Christ to admonish every man and teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. It's only the gospel that completes us in Christ. We preach Christ. That's the preeminence of Christ. Next we move on to the, our perseverance in Christ. Our perseverance in Christ. This takes us into chapter 2. Paul is writing out of deep concern for the Colossian believers. There are false teachers in the church at Colossae. They've crept in. And they are beginning to present within the church all kinds of false ideas about Christ and his gospel. They're trying to persuade people to go after a false gospel of law-keeping, of strict self-abasement and asceticism. The worship of angels and a preoccupation with visions. They're trying to distract them from a focus on Christ alone. Colossians 2.4, Paul writes this, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. People are making persuasive arguments all the time. That's true in our own culture as well. People are making all kinds of persuasive arguments to get us... To move away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. No one leads you away captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. There are all kinds of ideas out there and, and they subtly make their way into the church at times. 
arguing that we need something more, something better, something newer, rather than simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone, simply looking unto Jesus. Whatever this false teaching was, the true nature of it, it was clear that it was not the true gospel, for it was not according to Christ, as Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 8. It was not according to Christ. It did not keep Christ at the center of our salvation and at the center of our focus. As we began our life as Christians in Christ, so we continue our life as Christians with a focus on Christ. It is only in Christ that the fullness of deity dwells. Chapter 2, verse 9. The false teachers with their false gospel of self-improvement and self-abasement were not holding fast to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19. Yet Paul is encouraged that they have thus far not bought into the lie of these false teachers. They have thus far resisted these false claims. These seductive lies. Colossians 2, 5 and 6 says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you began, so continue. They had received Jesus Christ by faith. They must continue to walk in Him by faith. Not distracted by these Alluring false teachings. And in this way, they would persevere in Christ. Next, we see our position in Christ. This comes in chapter 3. Our position in Christ. See, we're making our way through. Paul explains here that the believer has died and that their life has been hidden with Christ in God. The believer has died and their life is now hidden with Christ in God. Chapter 3 and verse 3. Our old life of unrepentant sin and guilt and separation from God is dead and gone. And now new life has come. And it has come to us in Christ. This new life of ours is described as being hidden with Christ in God. That's who you are, Christian. You have new life, and this new life is hidden with Christ in God. We are safe and secure in Christ, for we are hidden in Christ. Similar to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been spiritually united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We've been raised up with Christ and he is now the focus of our spiritual life and our spiritual pursuits. 
So we're to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. The believer's identity, our position, has been totally changed. Our life is hidden now with Christ in God. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Having established now our new position in Christ, which is our spiritual union with Christ in his death and resurrection, Paul now moves on to our practice in Christ. This takes up the rest of chapter 3. Paul almost always presents our position in Christ before moving on to our practice in Christ. You may remember we talked about the importance of the indicative and the imperative. That the indicative statements, the statements about who we are, most often precede the imperative statements about what we're supposed to do. We must first understand who we are in Christ before we move on to how we are to live in Christ. And so here Paul moves from our position in Christ to our practice in Christ, which is his typical way. Our practice in Christ. And there are six practices. They're all listed in the app. Bonus material for app users. (laughs) We're going to go through them though. Okay, We're going to go through them quick. All right. First of all, we have our practice of putting off the old life. And again, that's not on the slide behind me. Our practice of putting off the old life, chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Our old sinful ways of thinking and acting, immorality, impurity, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander. Consider yourself dead to these things, Paul says. Put them off. Consider yourself dead, unresponsive to these things. That's part of your old life. So the first part of our new practice, of our new position, is to put off the old life. Next, we're to put on the new life. Our practice of putting on the new life. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Having put off the old ways of living and considering ourselves dead to these things, we're now to put on the behaviors and attitudes of the new self, the new man that God has created for us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse 10. In this new self, this new man, this new life, this new creation, where we recognize the spiritual equality of our spiritual union with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 11. There's no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, or Greek. With this new man, we're to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility, verse 12. We're to bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, we're to be a people of forgiveness now because that's part of being a part of this new creation. We're forgivers, we're gracious, we're kind, we're patient. Most of all, we're to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Chapter 3, verse 14. That's our practice of putting on the new life. Then we see our practice at church. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell within you, plural, among you. Among you all, with all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is where we minister to one another. This is where we let love reign and we forgive each other and we're kind to each other and we bless one another and we bless one another with our singing. We sing to one another and in so doing we're teaching one another and we're building up one another and we're admonishing one another with our songs as we sing together and gather as this new creation in Christ. That's our practice at church, then our practice at home. Chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives who submit to their husbands and husbands who love their wives. Homes where children are obedient to their parents and where fathers do not exasperate their children. And we see our practice at work. Verses Chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Christian workers who obey their bosses with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, doing their work as for the Lord and not for men. Christian bosses who seek to create a workplace characterized by justice and fairness, understanding that they too have a master in heaven to whom they are accountable. Our practice in prayer and outreach comes next. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul calls us to devote ourselves to prayer, to pray for one another, to pray for open doors for the gospel, for the gospel to go forth clearly and effectively through God's servants who share it and speak it. And Paul instructs us to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward unbelievers, making the most of every opportunity with gracious speech that is attractive and life-giving. This is all part of a new creation that that God has created, the new man, the, the new spiritual existence that is ours in Christ because we have died to the old way of living and we have died with Christ. And our life is now lived, hidden with Christ in God. And then we have the closing and the greetings. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, which we talked about last week. It's a rich, rich letter filled with so many gospel gems. And we've seen the broad overview now as we've walked through that basic outline. But I want us to pull back even further this morning, to go even higher in the air so we can scan the, the ground even better. Let's distill this letter down even further by looking at what I have identified as the theme of Colossians. The theme of Colossians, which is the gospel hope of Christ in you. This, of course, comes from the end of chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul describes the gospel as this, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's walk through this theme a little bit. The gospel hope of Christ in you. First, we have the gospel. The gospel. We know what the gospel is. Or do we? I hope you do. You've heard it already this morning. The gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. 
the good news that our sins can be forgiven and that we can have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul beautifully and vividly depicts Christ's saving work for us in the gospel in Colossians chapter 2. So look with me at Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. This is the gospel. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul is reminding the Colossian believers where they've come from and how they got to where they are now. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead, spiritually dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead in your sins. That's what Paul's saying. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that were against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is the gospel, the good news that your sins, your guilt, which was hostile to you, which required the wrath of God to be poured out upon you, God has nailed it to Jesus' cross. And Jesus bore the wrath of God's righteous indignation against your sin. His righteous wrath was poured out on His Son instead, who was himself righteous and sinless so that he could serve as a substitute for sinners. This debt, certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, the listing of all our sins which was hostile to us, God has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Friends, Jesus paid it all. The good news of forgiveness and eternal life is received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. How does it come to be that your sins are nailed to Christ's cross? It comes by faith, believing in Jesus alone as the all-sufficient sacrifice for your sins and mine. Trusting in Jesus alone, not trusting in your goodness, not trusting in your church attendance, not trusting in your family heritage, not trusting that you're an American and therefore a Christian, not trusting in any of that hogwash. That's not the gospel. Trusting that Jesus has paid it all for you. Not trusting in self, but trusting in the Savior. Friend, if you're not sure that the debt of sin and guilt has been taken away for you, let me assure you, you can be free of it today by placing your faith and trust in Jesus alone. That's the gospel. Let's look at hope. The gospel hope. This gospel, this good news gives us hope. And hope is a powerful thing. Hope is a Christian thing. Hope pulls us into the future, does it not? 
Hope helps us smile at tomorrow. And Christian hope is all of this and much more. For it is a hope centered upon and springing forth from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the hope laid up for us in heaven in chapter 1 and verse 5. He calls it the hope of the gospel in chapter 1 and verse 23. And he calls it the hope of glory in chapter 1 and verse 27. The Christian hope is the hope of heaven. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope of glory. And in the midst of a hopeless world, the Christian has hope. Christian, do you have hope today? Our hope can be deflated. This world is tough. When this old world starts getting me down, the song goes on, he climbs up on the roof. Well, you can climb up on your roof if you want, but you don't need to. Just look to Jesus. Remember what he's done for you. Remember all that he's secured on your behalf. Remember all that he's taken away. Remember the life you once lived and the life you have now in Christ, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember who you are. Remember those sins forgotten. Remember this life eternal that is ours. This hope stems from the fact that our greatest problem has been fully and finally dealt with and our situation has been completely reversed. Right? Your greatest problem, Christian, has been resolved. Finally, fully, completely. You've gone from death to life. You've gone from indebtedness spiritually to being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and to being co-heirs with Christ himself. The Christian has hope because we are never alone and never abandoned. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Chapter 3, verse 3. Even the reality of death in this fallen world cannot rob us of our hope. The Christian who dies, dies a death of hope. It's a different kind of death. This hope even extends to the last breath we breathe on this earth. As the hymn that we sing sometimes says, Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. There's coming a day when our hope is going to change to glad fruition. This is the hope of glory. This is the hope of heaven. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is the hope that Christ gives us. The gospel hope of Christ. Let's look at that now. The gospel hope of Christ. 
This gospel hope is the gospel hope of Christ. And Colossians has presented us with the true identity of this Christ. In rapid fire succession, Paul has summarized this amazing truth of who Christ truly is in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the very image of the invisible God, which is to say that he is God. He is also the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He will come to have first place in everything. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Later on in the letter, Paul will remind us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 3. And that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Chapter 2, verse 9. This is the Christ of Scripture and there is no other. This is the true identity of Jesus and He is the one who gives us hope. Don't let anyone lead you astray from Christ. He is the center of the gospel and therefore the only true source of hope. The gospel hope of Christ in you. And this is where our minds go. Christ, the Christ of chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is now in you. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel. It's not just that Christ has come to us once a long time ago in Bethlehem. It's that Christ has come to us and taken up residence within each one of us as Christians. And this is what truly gives us hope. Not just that my sins are forgiven or that I have eternal life. That would be enough to give us hope. (laughs) That would be enough. But there's more. There's so much more. But that Christ is in me. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has come to take up residence within me. And that means he's always with me. And that means that his power is always actively working within me. Always available within me. Colossians 1.29, Paul writes this, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works where? Within me. His power, which mightily works within me, empowers me for godly living and service. The good news of the gospel is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now as we close this morning, I want to quickly walk you through the last verse, okay? Chapter 4. And verse 18. That was all an introduction. (laughs) I now have 45 minutes of comments about this verse. No, it's not true. Not true. We're almost done. Colossians 4.18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul used a secretary, an admin, okay? That's the word we want to use. Or a more ancient term, an amanuensis. 
in writing this letter. That's what he did for most of his letters. He would dictate the letter verbally, and someone would be in the room, and they would write down the words that Paul said. Some conjecture that Paul had difficulty with his eyes, and so he had poor eyesight, and so he wasn't able to write as neatly as would have been practical. He probably had to write with large letters. He even says that at one point to the Corinthians, see what large letters I'm writing to you in, which isn't exactly the best use of paper, which was very costly, very expensive, very precious. And so rather than going through that, Paul would simply speak the words and someone would record them neatly, carefully, concisely on paper. And Paul did this regularly. It's possible Timothy was serving as Paul's secretary, for he mentions Timothy right at the outset as being right there by him. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 1. But now at the very end of this letter, Paul takes pen in hand himself. And he writes just a few lines in his own gnarly hand. Paul wants them to know this letter is from him. That this letter is personal. That this letter is authentic. It's from him. This letter is from his heart, and it comes to them with all the pastoral love and care which he has for them. And he wants them to know it's from him and that it comes to them with all the apostolic authority that a letter from him would possess. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. He then says, remember my imprisonment. Remember, he's under house arrest in Rome. Which sounds kind of cush, like, oh, sweet, I get to stay home all day. But it wasn't. Don't think of it that way. Likely at his own expense, with difficulty, not experiencing freedom of movement, anticipating a coming day of court where he will have to defend himself. A very difficult situation. Paul here in saying, remember my imprisonment, is not just asking them not to forget about him. He's asking them to pray for him. Pray for him while he's imprisoned. Paul's already said this as much. Colossians chapter 4 verse 3. Pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Pray for us. Pray for gospel opportunities. Pray pray for gospel outreach. Pray that I would have the words to speak with clarity, that I would speak it the way it ought to be spoken of. Similar to what the author of Hebrews says when he says in Hebrews 13, 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, as those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body of Christ. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Paul says, remember my imprisonment. Walk a mile in my shoes and pray for me. 
Finally, Paul closes the letter with these final words. And again, in his own handwriting. Grace be with you. Now, it was customary in the first century to close letters with traditional closings or valedictions, as they are called. We do the same thing. Sincerely, regards, all the best. Here is how the Romans typically signed off their letters. Cura ut valeas. Take care that you are well. Vive vale. Long life to you. Farewell. Or just the shortened vale. Goodbye. But Paul is not content to close this letter in such a predictable, conventional, standard, and worldly way. Instead, he closes with the very Christian valediction of grace be with you. We know that grace is God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners. So Paul ends this letter with a prayer of grace over the readers. We shouldn't be surprised, for that is exactly how Paul started the letter. Look back with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. After introducing himself and Timothy, who's there with him, Colossians 1-2, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you, grace be with you. Grace to you to begin, grace be with you to close. Both of these are shorthand prayers. May God's grace come to you And may God's grace always be with you. And so God's grace beautifully serves as these two bookends of the letter. It's what New Testament scholars call an inclusio. A literary device signaling that everything that is on the inside of these two bookends is considered to be a manifestation of God's grace. That grace covers all of it in between. From start to finish, it's all of grace. And it's a beautiful reminder that this is where our life is lived as well. Between the two bookends of God's grace. That all of our lives are lived by the grace of God and our salvation is all of grace from start to finish. And what a fitting end to such a magnificent letter heralding the gospel of God's grace. May God's grace be with you, just as it has been from the start, Paul says. Similar to what Paul said in chapter 2, Therefore, as you've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord by God's grace through faith in Jesus, even so continue by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the glorious message of Paul's letter to the Colossians. The gospel hope of Christ in you. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. That whether we're going line by line and a few verses at a time or seeing the grand sweep of your word as we've done this morning or tried to do. The Lord, what stands out is your grace. You didn't have to do any of this. We certainly didn't deserve what you've done for us. But in your grace, you gave us life and breath and all things. And in your grace, you opened our eyes and showed us our sin. And in your grace, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for all our sins. And in your grace, on the third day, you raised him up from the grave. So that now, by faith, all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can have forgiveness and eternal life. And it's all of your grace. From start to finish, from beginning to end, it's all of your grace. We thank you and praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's in his name we pray, amen.